It had been a long day. And he needed to sleep because it was still early in the week and these wedding celebrations tended to go on for days. He also knew that the more the guests celebrated and imbibed, they often got more demanding as the week went on. And he needed to sleep, but he couldn't sleep. All his mind could do was replay what he saw that day. This wasn't his first wedding. No, not by a long shot. He'd seen plenty, some extravagant, some more humble. But he, he really liked this particular family. I mean, they weren't the richest of the rich, but they loved their son and they loved their new daughter-in-law. They genuinely cared about this young couple. Plus, they treated the servants well, which wasn't always the case. But God helped them. They were in over their heads. I mean, it was apparent early in the week that they had not prepared well. And it soon be, became very clear that they were going to run out of wine. And he'd done enough of these that he could see it coming. But, you know, his job wasn't to speak. His job was to serve. And despite everyone's best efforts and intentions, the inevitable happened. And when it did, I mean, they all scrambled. This was going to be embarrassing. This was going to be ugly. It's going to reflect poorly on the groom and his family. But you know who take the brunt of the complaining, don't you? The servants, all right? That's just the way things are. But then the woman, Mary, she was a friend of the family. She, she actually, she was quite nice, and she'd been very helpful with some of the preparations. She, she steps into this thing, and she brings this guy over who he later learns is her son. And he's a teacher, and some of his followers were actually there with him at the wedding. And he remembers standing there in that room where they kept the, the food and the drink while the mother and son talked over in the corner and standing there with the other servants. And then she, she looks at them and she says, do what he says. Well, what happens next? That's, that's the reason he can't sleep. This guy tells him and the others to fill the ceremonial washing jars to the brim with water. And he remembers thinking, you know, what's that have to do with our with our problem or with this party. I mean, the guests have already washed their hands today, and there's plenty of water for them to do that tomorrow. But, you know, servants do what they're told. So they all top the jars off. And then the, the teacher says, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And then it dawns on him. He's like, wait a minute. This means he means to drink. Now, this is when bad things happen to servants. I mean, I could, he could get fired or something worse. But what can he do? I mean, he just can do what he's told. She said, do whatever he said. He, but so he does it. He draws some out. And it wasn't water. It wasn't water. I mean, he knows he put water in there, but what came out wasn't water. So when he takes it to the master, he drinks it, and he says it's the best wine so far. So the master quickly pulled the groom aside, and they're talking, but he and the others, they have to get busy serving the guest. But at the end of the day, all he wants to do is go back into that room and stare at those jars. Six of them. An abundance of wine. There's still wine there. Of course, you know, he wanted to taste it, but you know, servants aren't allowed to do that stuff. So, Six jars. Gallons upon gallons of wine. Who is this guy? And see, the kicker is nobody knew, right? 
I mean, the teacher's followers knew. They were amazed. He and the other servants that drew the water out, they, the wine out, they knew. But no one else knew. All the guests think the groom actually bought this stuff. And no one's going to tell them. Who is this guy? We can't sleep. Tomorrow's going to be another busy day. And he wonders, will this teacher be back? And who is he? So, we read these stories from the Gospels. And the Gospel writers, they give us what we need to know. But there's often a backstory. There's always a backstory. It makes us wonder what was happening. And it's a good practice for us to insert ourselves into the story and imagine what is happening. So why did they run out of wine at this wedding? What was it like for these servants? You know, the few who actually knew what had happened. What did they experience? What did they see? What were they thinking? Okay, there are seven signs that Jesus performs in John's gospel. We're going to hit most of these in our Word Made Flesh series. This first sign is our text today, changing water into wine. We find that in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. The others are as follows in this order. Um, the healing of the official son in chapter 4, the healing of the man who had been ill for 38 years in chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water are both in chapter 6, the healing of the man born blind from birth, we find that in chapter 9, and finally, raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And this last sign is the most significant. Okay, In his book, Irresistible, author Andy Stanley states that this last sign was the tipping point in Jesus' earthly ministry, and particularly for those who opposed Jesus. Stanley states that Jesus raised a well-known citizen from the dead. All right, When news of that miracle circulated and reached the chief priest and the Pharisees, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. They realized at this point that they, they could no longer diminish Jesus' influence on the crowd. So in desperation, these two groups had to join forces. Stanley continues, at some point, at one point, somebody's emotions got control of their mouth and they blurted out what everyone in the room was thinking. John 11, verse 47. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And here's the kicker. And the Romans will come and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. See, that's the culmination. That last sign is the tipping point as Andy Stanley calls it. And we're going to get there as we work through this series. But these are not called miracles in John's gospel. They're called signs because they in themselves aren't the main point. Rather, they point to something else about Jesus. And as we work through John, we're going to see that all of the signs point to the glory of Jesus. That is, they point to his very nature and therefore the very nature of God. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being and the radiance of his glory. And so in him we see more accurately who God is and what he's like. Because if we think back to our series from Colossians, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time God is not like Jesus. We haven't always known what God is like, but now we do. And as we work through this text today, we're, we're going to interpret what this sign, the turning of water into wine tells us about Jesus and the nature of God. Okay, so regarding signs, the signs and the proclamations that take place in the early part 
of the Gospel of John. Our friends at the Bible Project, they identify this reoccurring pattern. I think this is really good. First, Jesus completes a sign, or he makes a claim about himself. And that's going to result in a misunderstanding or even a controversy. And lastly, people are, are then forced to make a choice about who they think Jesus is. So in our Word Made Flesh series, the question we need to continue to ask each week is what is being revealed about God's presence and God's glory in each of these counts? How is our knowledge and our experience of God changed and nurtured or fleshed out in each of these stories? All right, so this is early in Jesus' earthly ministry, and the five or so disciples who are with him at that time, they attend this wedding in Cana. So first off, where's Cana? Right here, it's about, uh, you see it in the lower left part of the screen there, about 12 kilometers north of Nazareth in Galilee. This is, this is Jesus' backyard, if you will, okay? The proximity of Cana to Nazareth, uh, and the fact that Mary is there seemed to indicate that this was probably a friend or perhaps maybe even a relative of Mary or Jesus. Incidentally, a little side note, uh, Nathan, the, the disciple Nathaniel, who we met last week, he was also believed to be from Cana. So the problem, the problem is they run out of wine. Why? Well, the text doesn't tell us that, but there has to be a backstory. Commentator Bruce Maline states that this was a serious social faux pas, and it really reflected poorly on the bridegroom. Lawsuits were not unknown to happen in these circumstances. Now, Mary, Mary is obviously involved, and she brings this problem to Jesus. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. To which Jesus responds to Mary, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Okay, now regarding Mary, commentator Gail O'Day states her words really carried with it an implied request. Jesus' mother assumed that her son, Jesus, would somehow attend to this problem. Okay, so we have several things we need to deal with in these first few verses. First, in the 21st century, referring to Mary as woman sounds cruel and demeaning to our ears, but it wasn't. Again, O'Day says Jesus frequently addresses women with the greeting woman. We're going to see that again in a few weeks in John 4 when Jesus addresses a Samaritan woman and even at the end of the gospel with Mary when he's on the cross. However, O'Day adds that the use of this form of address to address one's own mother was unusual. And it, it creates this distance between Jesus and his mother. And it is really playing down their familial relationship. And I think this is indicative of an important transition in that relationship between Jesus and Mary. So it's tempting to hear this as harsh. It's a harsh response to his mother, but it need not be. Why do you involve me is literally translated, woman, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? Jesus is reminding her that this really isn't their problem. And he's also indicating, hey, this, this may not be the right time, Mom. But more literally, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. So in John, whenever Jesus talks about his hour, he's referring to the hour of his death when he will be glorified. That's, what, that's when God's true self-sacrificing love will be revealed in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension. 
So if there was any further dialogue between Jesus and his mother, John doesn't give it to us. He doesn't record it, but he concludes with Mary saying to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. Now John, however, does provide quite a bit of detail about the jars in verse 6, stating that nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each of them holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Okay, so I have a 30-gallon jar here to kind of give us some perspective. This is 30 gallons. Yeah, I wanted that to thump. 30-gallon jar. Imagine six of these, six of these of comparable size. That's going to be between, um, you know, 120, 180 gallons of water and stone jars. And it's significant that they were stone, not clay or other types of earthenware. Most all the commentators I read agree that stone jars in contrast to earthen jars, were used because they're free from any possibility of Levitical impurity. See, stone is impervious to water as opposed to earthenware. We see all that, if you want to go, if you want to look into that, you find all that in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 33 through 38. But in verse 7, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. So these six jars containing, who knows, 120, 150 or more gallons of water yielded the equivalent maybe of 605 bottles of wine. So that's not only an abundance of wine, but apparently it's the best, the choicest wine. So this is a really extravagant miracle. Frankly, it probably goes down as one of the best all-time wedding gifts ever, when you think about it. <laughs> but O'Day draws us to what is most important. Jesus creates new wine in the old vessels of the Jewish purification rites, symbolizing that these old forms are given new content. Verse 9, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone who brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So obviously the master of the banquet, he didn't know. I could, I could visualize this guy with his arm around the groom, you know, giving him this knowing look. Like, look, young man, here's how you, here's how you throw a party. But the poor, poor bridegroom and his family, who knows what they knew? I mean, we could probably speculate that they knew something based on Mary uh, because she knew. But it also seems clear to me that the guests probably didn't know. So it's compelling to me that, that in John, in what many who attempt to harmonize all four of the Gospels uh, believe is truly one of Jesus' first signs or miracles, that so few knew. Jesus, who's the real bridegroom, uh, performs his first miraculous sign and someone, the other bridegroom, gets to credit. Now, we, the readers of the gospel today, we, we know, but I'm going to guess the guest probably didn't know. And Jesus gives us the reason why in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The sign was to reveal his glory and it was primarily for the disciples' benefit. Well, this is... 
the first of many signs, and they would grow both in terms of the magnitude of their public awareness and, and their impact. But, but this sign is for our benefit as well. You know, we are, um, this is, we're, we're introduced to the manifestation of his glory. And this is a story about transformation. Water into wine, water into new wine. Tom Wright puts it this way. The, the transformation of water into wine, of course, is meant by John to signify the effects that Jesus can have, can still have today on people's lives. Right, has an intriguing note, though. Transformation only came when someone took Mary's words seriously. Do whatever he tells you. So, we stated that the sign is a symbol that reveals something about Jesus. And as we walk through John, we're going to continue to ask the question, what does this sign reveal? What is being revealed about God here? And in this text today, I think there's actually quite a few things. But I'm going to hit on three and I'm going to take them in what I think are the escalating levels of importance, okay? So first off, I think this sign shows us that God cares about the little things. So when you think about this first sign, you know, it, frankly, it doesn't seem to quite carry the same level of gravity of the signs that we're going to encounter later. I mean, no one is sick, no one is lame, no one is dying, no one is raised from the dead here. You know, on the scale of the signs and miracles that we see Jesus performing all of the Gospels, this one doesn't maybe seem like a necessity, but maybe in some ways even a luxury. I mean, we established that running out of wine would have been embarrassing. It would have probably caused public disgrace for the family, perhaps maybe some legal ramifications, but no one's life or well-being was probably threatened here, and in time I think the family would have recovered. But this is a good reminder that God cares about the details of our lives as well. He's not annoyed when we come to him in prayer with our small problems. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we often, when we're in the middle of our small problems, we, we react, we complain, we pray fervently like they're big problems. But God cares about the little things. So one of the strangest passages in the Old Testament is found in 2 Kings 6. It's the story of a lost axe head, all right? where the prophet Elijah actually retrieves this axe head that flies into the water. The axe head was borrowed by one of the sons of the prophets. Uh, in the story, the prophet Elijah actually makes the axe head float so that they can retrieve it. So it's one of those passages where it makes you ask, now why is that in the Bible? Um, commentator Bob Deffenbaugh states regarding the challenges of that particular text, many have tried to spiritualize this text to make it relevant, but he adds, he's, he continues, he, I believe it is very relevant. God cares about lost axe heads. God cares about lost car keys. God cares about flat tires. God cares about the little things that affect his children. Just like Mary was bold to go to Jesus in the midst of this mini crisis at the wedding, we don't need to feel guilty about coming to God with our similar things, such as checks that are lost in the mail or running late for an appointment because of traffic, or this one's for Rhonda, the weather at vacation Bible school or outreach events. God cares about his children, and he cares about the little things that affect his children. Okay, moving up the scale of importance. Secondly, I think this sign points to the creative and the abundant nature of our God. Now, 
depending on how you feel about wine, you may be thinking, wow, I wonder what it was like to be there and taste this wine made by Jesus. You know, perhaps the best wine made ever. Well, I say if you've tasted wine, you already have. This wasn't the first wine Jesus has made. In fact, I contend that all wine has been made by Jesus, as well as all food and drink for that matter. In the opening chapter of John, from a few weeks ago, verse 3, it states, Of Jesus, the Word made flesh, that through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This past summer, we studied Colossians, where Paul reminds us in chapter 1, verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him... He holds all things together. One more. Psalm 104, verse 14. He makes the grass grow for the cattle and the plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread to sustain their hearts. So, what I'm saying in all this is Jesus is the one making our food. Okay? Um... He makes plants grow. He creates oxygen, the air that we breathe. You know, farmers and ranchers and vineyard owners and winemakers, they all steward over their task, but none of them really make anything grow. Paul, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.7, he's using an agricultural image for, uh, for evangelism, but he says, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So this reminds us of the abundant provision of God's grace. So, a few years ago, when Pastor Stacy last preached on this passage, uh, he, he made the following statement, and I'm going to quote him here. Who gives the best wine to a bunch of drunks who don't know the difference? Apparently Jesus does. <laughs> and if you think that's too shocking a thing to say, you need to read the Gospels and see that Jesus does shocking things all the time. I'll continue to quote Stacy. Jesus' provision of so much wine is not just grace, it's grace upon grace. See, in Jesus, God gives an abundance of the very best he has to offer. He gives amazing grace to us even when we are drunk on our own sin, indifference, and arrogance. I shared that with Stacy, that quote that I was going to use on my sermon, and he said, Wow, I said that? That's pretty good. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's really good, man. <laughs> Let me say that again. He gives amazing grace to us even when we are drunk on our own sin, indifference, and arrogance. God still gives abundant grace to those who are too drunk to know what's going on. Just like guests at the party. They're the beneficiaries of all food and all drink that God created. The existence of plants and animals that sustain them, the oxygen that they breathe, the conditions on this planet that allow us fragile creatures to live in this thin slice of the universe that's the exact distance from a star so that this planet can even sustain life, the exact distance so that we neither burn up or freeze to death, that is the abundant, extravagant provision of grace from a generous God, a God who loves us. Grace is even for those who reject the notion of him, 
while living on all that he provides. That's abundant grace. Grace on top of grace. Lastly, and most importantly, this sign is a picture of the new covenant. Jesus takes something not so great and he turns it into something wonderful. Dirty hand-washing water into new wine. Again, Bob Deffenbaugh states, he takes that which was the cause of drudgery and he makes it a source of great delight. See, the, the Old Testament law required various kinds of washings. And all these washings were to demonstrate to the Israelites how deeply sinful and unclean they were. And therefore, really how unfit they were to enter into God's presence. These washings were drudgery. Yet Israel did them in obedience to the law. By the time Jesus arrived, the growing legalism of Judaism added even more washings, making it a very laborious religion. Jesus takes ceremonial cleansing water and he makes it into new wine. Jesus took that which was toil and pain and makes it into pleasure. He takes that which the Jews would have found unfit to drink and he makes it into the best wine. This is a picture of the superiority of the new covenant to the old, of grace to the law. So in this passage, and the many passages to come, Jesus is about taking something old and making it new. He's taking the law of Moses to the Israelites. He's turning it into the word made flesh, standing in their midst, taking water that was used to keep the law of Moses and these ceremonial cleanings and turning it into the wine of joy, celebration, and really the announcement of the kingdom of God. In next week's passage, he's going to take the temple, he's going to replace it with himself. And all this is grace stacked upon grace. Grace already given. So this sign and the other signs in the Gospel of John teach us about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that purpose is really simply stated at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that in believing you might have life in his name. Do you believe? Do you believe that? See, the most important decision in life is what you believe about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're with us online and you're here this morning just like the guests at the party that were too drunk and unaware to realize the grace upon grace they were given and who it was that was providing it. Maybe that's how you've gone through your life, unaware. Unaware that every breath that you take is a gift. Unaware that all that sustains you was created by him out of his abundance. Unaware that everything that's ever been given to you, everything that's ever been provided from you for you comes from a God that loves you and desires a relationship with you. A God who cares about the little things in your life the details of your life, but a God who's rich and abundant in his provision. Jesus alone is a manifestation of God in human flesh. He alone, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's the one who can forgive your sin. If you're with us and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, 
The good news is you can do that right now. All that's needed for a relationship with Jesus is, as it says in Romans, declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. If you're not sure of that and you'd like to be, you can just pray a prayer with me right now, this morning. I say this every time I share the gospel. There's nothing mystical or magical about prayer. Prayer is just talking to God. It's just an expression of what's in our heart and our faith. And if you'd like to do that with me, you could pray right now. If you're online or you're here in the building and you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, and believe that he died for you, for you, and that he rose again. And if you want to, why don't you pray with me right now? God, I confess my need for a Savior. And Jesus, I believe you are God who took on flesh to die for me and that you rose again, paying the price for my sin and making a way for me to have a relationship with you. I confess you as Lord Jesus. And I thank you that it's by your grace that I'm saved. I thank you for the new life that I have in Christ and for salvation. You are worthy to be praised. Amen. If you're with us and you prayed that prayer for the first time, I would like you to let me know. Or you can let Pastor Stacy know. You can let Pastor Christian will be available. Or if you want to reach out to us, you can find our emails at ecclife.net. Amen.